0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Crime and Coffee. My name's Allison.
1: And I'm Mike.
0: Well, welcome, Mike. It's good to have you here.
1: It's been very welcoming of you to say welcome, so thank you very much.
0: Welcome Um, to my home.
1: I feel welcome in your home. (laughs) <laughs> Which is a good thing since I live here, too.
0: Oh, shit. I forgot about that. Yeah. When did you get here? I don't know. What, 20 years ago? Yeah, about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So what's been going on with you there, fella?
1: Um, You know, just uh, excited. get the new year, like we talked about. And I just love the new fresh start. It's just an opportunity to kind of look at everything that's been going on over the past year or two or whatever. And if you've had some goals in your life, you know, you kind of look back like, I thought I would have been doing this by now. You can look at that and say, okay, well, time to start doing it. You know, like I'm kind of a, I have an entrepreneurial mind, even though I've never really done anything entrepreneurial. So, you know, I always think about those kind of things like, well, now I'm 42, going to be 43 in a couple months here. If I'm ever doing something, <laughs> it's probably time to start doing it before I, um, you know, just get too old and then I'm like 60.
0: Time to retire.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it uh, that kind of stuff. I love the fresh start and the re- re- just general review of life. Um,
0: We've been doing some stuff around the house. Oh, yeah, I guess Things cleaned up. Um, we always keep a pretty tidy house, but you know how it is. Over the months, things just pile up. It's or nice Projects
1: of, go. Nice of you to include me in that, even though I really don't do much of cleaning anything up. But I, I try to keep it tidy for your brain. Yes. You know?
0: Thank you. Um, so Mike's office is at the front of our house, and it's the room of the house that I've had very little input on because it's his office. It's not mine. And um, it's just kind of. Gets pushed to the wayside and I just walk in the room and I'm like, ugh. I get this general like just,
1: ugh. there's nothing wrong with it. You're making it to be like a swoop. No, it's
0: not. But it's How not to you? my standards. Well,
1: yeah, nothing's to your standard. Well, Even the whole house is not to your standard.
0: You know, we're a lot of papers there. Kind of. Let me set
1: the scene for anybody here. So, um, let's say you want to enjoy yourself outside, maybe have, hey, it's a nice day outside, let's have a cup (laughs) of coffee or maybe some lunch together. Here he goes,
0: web of lies. Yeah,
1: and um, most couples would go outside, have a nice little talk, Allison looks around constantly like, okay, um, what is wrong here? What can we do differently? No, Mike,
0: it's not true. Oh, we
1: need to power wash this. I Um, was
0: sitting on the patio, and the arm of my lounge chair was all chipped up. Have you ever thought about getting new patio furniture? Well, it's been about 15 years, so I think the time is now
1: the chairs we sit in work perfectly
0: yeah they they hold us but they look like shit
1: i'm a big guy 250 pounds and if a chair can hold me for 10 years that's pretty damn good yeah
0: it's pretty damn good they've they've done the job for us and now it's time for them to move on And out with the bad and in with the new. The
1: scraping on there is from like a hurricane that came through once or a a tropical storm, which was nice. You know, it's kind of a nice remembrance. No. It's saying, remember the past and look forward to the future. Let's
0: keep moving forward. Yeah. So anyway, yesterday we got new drapes for Mike's office, completely cleaned it, got rid of just stuff that we didn't need, and it looks like a completely different room. It looks beautiful and Ah, what a good feeling. And lo and behold, that's where we record this podcast.
1: Yeah, and uh, we have some plans to put this podcast up on this YouTube thing that the kids are telling us about.
0: These kids? I don't know. Something about a TikTok? TikTok.
1: TikTok? TikTok. TikTok.
0: We're 42. We don't know. Well,
1: I know TikTok. We're kidding.
0: Yeah. I'm not on TikTok. I have seen like our daughter will send something from TikTok or whatever. I'll click on it. But it's one of those things, I don't, I like to limit my social media time. Sure. I don't want to introduce another platform, so I have not delved into that world. Yeah,
1: but we realize if we want to make some money on this thing at some point, um, yes. you know, well, we appreciate all of our listeners. You guys are the, the base of everything, so thank you so much. Well, we
0: wouldn't be in here speaking if you weren't listening, yeah. so thank you. I and mean,
1: it's going pretty well, I must say. So, you know, thanks for telling your friends and all that stuff. So we're going to keep on expanding, go go to video. Um. See what that does, and then you know maybe make some TikToks here and there. And who knows? Who knows what will happen? And also, we're thinking about uh, actually, we are going to add another word to our name.
0: Um. Yes, Mike was informing me that when you look up "Crime and Coffee" podcast, it's not easy to find us. Correct. So we are going to slightly change our name to the Crime and Coffee. Couple.
1: Couple. Yes. Oh, you wanted me to say it at the same time as you.
0: No, it's okay. Oh,
1: okay. You were like, mm, looking at me and like, okay.
0: Crime and Coffee Couple Podcast. Yeah,
1: and yeah, it's going to be good. It's just something that, if you Google it, we already come up under that, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if that's everybody's thing, because Google's different, depending on what you look for, but... Um, it popped
0: up on mine. So, yeah. we just want to make ourselves more easily found, put ourselves out on more platforms so that we're just more readily available to people. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: all about uh, getting you these stories that everybody you know likes listening to, so thank you. Thanks for listening.
0: Yeah. So we're enjoying it. And thank you for being here. Thank you for listening this week. I'm up.
1: Oh, real quick. Uh, we are on social media, Crime and Coffee, too, whether it's Instagram or Twitter. And um, I just found out that Spotify now allows people to review. So if you listen to us on Spotify, send a five-star review if you could. And then uh, also always Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave some words on the review, too, because that helps us out. Just saying, hey, uh, Mike and Allison are pretty cool, or Allison and Mike, as it were, because uh, you know, you're the...
0: Alphabetical? Uh,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So yeah, I know it's a pain in the butt to take you know, a few moments to do that. I'm always rushed. So leaving a review sometimes... Is just not what you want to do, but we do appreciate it, and thank you so much for your kind words. Or if you were to give us a five star review, we would appreciate it.
1: Yeah, to scroll to all the way to the bottom when you go to our podcast, and it's right there.
0: And thank you for being here. So I guess I'll just dive right in. Today is my day, um, and I am talking about the Robinson, the Robinson family murders. Robinson,
1: not Robinson, not Robinson. Okay,
0: Robinson, Robinson.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Never heard. Yeah, of it.
0: never heard that name before. Um, and this is also referred to as the good heart murders because of where it took place. Mm,
1: Good heart. Um, H
0: A R T. It's a location in Michigan. Okay.
1: I was going to try to figure it out, but I'm glad you just told me
0: it's not, you know, I have a good heart for you, Mike. Not that type of heart. Yeah. So this story takes place in Michigan in 1968. So it all kind of started on July 26, or I'm sorry, July 22nd, 1968 Mrs. Moore was hosting a bridge party at her cabin in um Michigan.
1: A lot of bridge players back in the day. Yeah, we I don't, don't play know. enough bridge.
0: Uh, do people still play bridge?
1: Yeah, there's some bridge players, but not nearly as enough. Like that used to be the social thing. Maybe because they only had shit TV. Like there wasn't like really good TV all over the place, and it's so much easier just to pop on the tube.
0: Well, it's it's social, so I think that's kind of nice that people gather to play.
1: Well, you don't really like people, so well, sometimes I mean, your I shirt do. even says. It. <laughs>
0: My shirt does say it. What does it say? I
1: like murder shows, comfy clothes, and maybe three people.
0: I. Like people, but a lot of people annoy the fuck out of me.
1: Well, yeah, but yummy, I mean, you love your friends and such.
0: I and I like people. There's a lot of good people in the world. Yeah, and but
1: you're you're a clinical dietitian, and your patients love you. They so. do. And I mean, I'm at very, least what you tell me. I don't know.
0: No, I'm very, very kind and good with people. But there's a lot of people that are just so rude and that i come across on a daily basis
1: so maybe these bridge people like each other they
0: were probably kind people yes so So, they they play
1: bridge i'm sorry yes
0: so it's july 22nd 1968 they're playing bridge at mrs moore's cabin and they're sensing this horrific smell in the air and they're wondering, what the hell is that? We need to get to the bottom of this. I can't sit here anymore. It's making me sick to my stomach. Ugh. So Mrs. Moore decides to call Chauncey Bliss, the owner of Blisswood Cabins, which is where they are. And it's funny because he was referred to kind of 50 50, but Chauncey or Mani Bliss. Hmm. I don't know how a person has two names. Again,
1: back in the like, 50s, 60s, 70s, a lot of people had like nicknames like yeah. Bubbles. You hear that thrown you around. You always a lot. say Bubbles. I I just, I've
0: never heard anyone except a clown or a seal referred to as Bubbles. I
1: guarantee if you, everybody asks their grandparent if they're still alive, God bless if they are, they probably knew of Bubbles. I so,
0: swear you've said that multiple times. It's weird. And I don't know. You're weird.
1: I just, I, when I was a kid, I remember thinking I was probably five, <laughs> and they, there's always some dude they're talking about named Bubbles. I'm like, who the hell in my head? I was like,
0: who the hell's named bubbles were you watching the bozo the clown show no, is that what you were watching when we were was talking about bubbles
1: in chicago illinois with my grandparents and they were talking about bubbles some Mike, guy with class
0: bozo the clown was filmed in chicago we've just cracked the case maybe it
1: was bozo the clown <laughs> but his no name is i'm sure there
0: was someone on his show named bubbles oh, well there was cookie <laughs> well there was cookie um so he uh mrs moore calls chauncey bliss or Monty bliss we're Monty. gonna call him chauncey okay uh the owner of Blisswood Cabins and this is located in Harbor Springs Michigan r- just north of Goodhart, Michigan and this is why it's called also referred to as the Goodheart murders um so you know she's telling him Chauncey please something is going on it reeks and please investigate what what the hell is happening here so um, Chauncey basically tracks down the stench to a neighboring cabin about a half mile, a little bit more than a half mile away from where Mrs. Moore is located at this time. He's walking up to the place, assuming that maybe a raccoon or something died in the crawl space, and that's what's causing to the smell.
1: So it's definitely a decomposing some It's
0: It's something really bad. The fact that it's, like, overwhelming her bridge party bad. I mean, I
1: figured being this is a murder podcast, it would be some kind
0: of... Yes. Although I don't know how an animal, you know, tracked over a half mile away would, you know result in such a stench but you know he's trying to figure that out
1: sure you're not thinking somebody's dead
0: no you are not so as he's approaching the cabin chauncey finds that the drapes are closed and there's a bunch of flies buzzing about um he finds nothing under the crawl space so now it's you know time to move on he's thinking at this point that maybe an animal must have fallen down the chimney inside the cabin and died so he's knocking on the door of the cabin Trying to get access, but of course, if the family was there, you'd wonder why they didn't investigate the smell, but regardless, this is where he is. So there was no answer on the door when he was knocking, so he decides to jimmy the lock with a file, slip the latch, and pull the door open. As the door swung open, the horrific stench absolutely lambasted him in the face.
1: Lambasted, you say?
0: Lambasted. It was (laughs) that powerful. As he held his nose and peered into the cabin, he was stunned by what he saw, and it wasn't good. He saw amongst the swarming flies, he could see the feet of a person under a blanket that was thrown over the body on the floor. And then further into the cabin, he noticed a lump in the hallway, Mm -hmm. assuming it was possibly another body. At this point in time, he decides it's time to call the police. Mm -hmm. So sometime in the three o'clock hour, right around 315, the uh, police arrive from the Emmett County Sheriff's Office. And they are not at all prepared for what they found. And at this time, the sheriff in town actually was taking like a well, well overdue vacation. From what I heard, it would be it had been about eight years since he had vacationed with his family.
1: That's the American way.
0: So yeah, which is very unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, but he's out in Yellowstone with his family vacationing at the time that this just so happened. He's like, of all times for me to be on family vacation. He's huh? like, in eight years. This is why I can't take a vacation. <laughs> exactly. So um, as the police are arriving, they're not at all prepared. They find that the lump that he had seen... In the hallway was not one body, but three.
1: Oh, man. I was thinking like a head or something.
0: No. Nope. They are okay. piled on top of each other. It was a man, a boy, and a little girl.
1: <sighs> little bodies. That yes. Sucks.
0: It's it's tragic. In the doorway of a back bedroom, they find a fifth body, kind of halfway in the room, halfway out of the room. And further into that same room was another boy, about teenage years old, Also dead on the floor. And all covered or? No, um, the mom was covered. And then I guess there was a blanket over the lump in the hall. Yeah. But then the other two bodies were fully exposed. Hmm, Interesting. Yes. So they are finding six bodies in this cabin at this time. So the fifth um, body that was found halfway in and out of the door was a teenage boy crumpled on the floor, clutching playing cards in his hands. How Hmm. sad is that? Wow. Like you're in the middle of a card game when whatever went down happened. Yeah. Um. So.
1: Well, you got to think like monoxide, carbon monoxide, or something. But then they're covered, so there's yeah, something.
0: So you know, at first the thought crossed their mind as a murder, suicide. But then you know that was quickly dis- dispelled. But um, the uh sixth body that they found was the other teenage boy in the room. He was laying on his stomach. Uh, arms outstretched. There were 15 shell casings found on the scene, 11 from a 22 caliber rifle and four from a 25 caliber handgun. Hmm. An expensive ring and some cash were missing, but most valuables were left behind. So it was likely not a robbery. Um, Each family member had been shot by a gun the little girl and the father had also been struck by a claw hammer. Mm. So, very, very sad. The bodies were so badly decomposed that the investigators had to wear gas masks when entering the cabin. One of the investigators had said he initially went in without a gas mask. He said he was covered in flies while he was in the place, yeah. and he could only last maybe two minutes in there without it. It, well, was, it was that bad.
1: So, the smell was so bad. Yes, so there's because
0: like- of the de- decomposition.
1: Right, right. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. So, so in the
1: gas mask, you wouldn't be able to smell it? I mean, you'd probably smell it still, but just not as bad.
0: I don't know. They were yeah. still in their regular clothes. It's not like they were in hazmat suits or anything, but they just had gas masks on their face. Sure. So the family was dressed as if they were going on a trip and a partially packed suitcase sat open on the bed. Because of the state of decomposition, the hospital refused to even accept them for autopsy. It it's was, like, it they're was dead. That bad. Yeah. Um. Well, they needed an autopsy. Oh. It was just the, it, the stench was so bad. They were oh. like, you can't bring them in, in here. Yeah. So they basically made like a makeshift autopsy area at the... Uh, local, like, fairgrounds or something like that. It was in a chicken coop that they did this. Oh, wow. Um, of the local fairgrounds. And then later on in the investigation, a second round of autopsies had been done in late November of 1968. Um, they were exhumed from the Southfield Cemetery to check for even more evidence. So a couple of autopsies had ended up being done Hmm. so this is kind of where the story then goes back to so on sunday june 16th 1968 of course where i initially started was july 22nd 22nd of that same year
1: i'm taking good notes over here very good mike you're a very
0: good pupil i give you an a (laughs) plus plus so on sunday june 16th 1968 the robinson family i keep wanting to say robinson so pardon me the robinson robinson (laughs) You did good. Thank you. The Robinson family was looking forward to a summer getaway at their vacation cottage or cabin. It was referred to as both. It looked like a cabin to me, but whatever you want to call it, I'm going to call it a cabin.
1: I view them as the same.
0: Yeah. So this is on Lake Michigan, just north of Goodhart, Michigan um just absolutely gorgeous mike you would absolutely love this
1: yeah it sounds really peaceful i'd love to get away to something like that
0: super super peaceful it's remote it's a quiet little village tons of trees i mean their backyard was basically lake michigan it's it's gorgeous and actually the resort is still there wow yeah it's called blisswood um so the family live near detroit in lathrop am i saying that right lathrop something like
1: okay so I, i brought this up on map sorry to interrupt. But this is in the uh, LP, as they refer to it, the lower peninsula of oh. Michigan. So not the upper peninsula. Um, so the, the one that you would think of when you think of Michigan. Okay. Um, so it's like the very northern point of Michigan. It's like basically. the tip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right near Mackinac City, Mackinac Island.
0: Oh, Mackinac—that's pretty.
1: Yeah, um, Mackinac Islands where they can't—they have no like cars. Or no, anything. Mm-mm. so looks. I like would a, love to go there. People from Illinois, like we're from Chicago, as some of our listeners know, and people from Illinois used to always vacation in Michigan or Wisconsin just to kind of get away from the hustle and bustle. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, this is even north of Traverse City, where I went to once for skiing. Um, So, like, way, way north of Michigan.
0: Yeah, really pretty. And I never did get the opportunity to vacation up by the Lake, lake Michigan, because we would always come down to Florida to the beaches. Oh, okay. But it, it's absolutely idyllic. It's a perfect place for a family to get away and spend time together from the hustle and bustle of daily life. Yeah, beautiful. So, they would look forward to this. At this point in time, they had owned their cabin for about 10 years, um, and they would often go, so they would head up from Detroit where they lived near. And I'm sorry, I pronounced that wrong. It's not Lathrop. It's Lathrop. I hate pronouncing cities wrong. Cause I know if somebody happened to be listening from there, they're like, eh, idiot. Um, well, you, so you corrected yourself. So I good corrected job. myself. So, um, Anyway, this is the Blisswood Cabins. It's a private resort of log and stone summer cabins developed by the Bliss family. And like I said, it still exists to this day. So the Robinson family arrived on June 16th that year. They called their cabin Somerset. So they named it. And they it stood at the end of a private drive. It was very secluded by dense forest. It was basically impossible to see the cabin from the road.
1: I picture like the great outdoors. You know, yeah. Like a John Candy movie, mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. And
0: like I said, their backyard was Lake Michigan. So it was Beautiful. just very quiet and secluded. Trees wow. in the front, lake in the back.
1: Nice place to get away and relax, not necessarily mm, get murdered.
0: No. So Richard or Dick, I often saw or saw him referred to as Dick. So I'm going to call him Dick.
1: I love it. we need more dicks
0: we do so dick robinson was the father and he was 42 years old at the time he operated an advertising agency called rc robinson and associates he also published a bi-monthly arts magazine for the detroit area called impresario Mm. and um this was functioned out of his one-story office building cool so his wife was 40 year old shirley and she was a homemaker The couple was married for almost 20 years. I had read that they were about a month shy of their 20th anniversary at the time of their murders. And they had four children, 19-year-old Richie, who attended Eastern Michigan University. He was described as bright and had good manners. They Actually, they were all said to have had very good manners. And then there was 17-year-old Gary. He attended Southfield Lathrop High School. And he played in a garage band. Then there was 12-year-old Randall. His friend would say, we did normal things together. We rode bikes and worked on stamp collections. You know, a typical
1: 1968 exactly. 12-year-old.
0: Yes. And then there was a the little one, 7-year-old Susan. And she was a quiet little girl with blue eyes who dreamed of having a pony. Um, the couple enjoyed the theater. And Dick enjoyed painting and watercolor and he also liked flying private planes. So yeah, that's a cool hobby.
1: I mean, I was, was going to say he sounds artsy, you know, obviously at advertising, you got to have all kind of, yeah, I'm a managing print art. And then he had his magazine. So, right. um, yeah,
0: Creative. But,
1: yeah. Yeah. And then also the son, Richie. Went to Eastern Michigan. That's uh, part of the MAC conference where uh, we went to Northern Illinois University. Oh, so we would play uh, Eastern Michigan every year.
0: Fun fact I didn't know that. Yep. So, this um, couple, they didn't drink, they didn't smoke or gamble, they attended church regularly, and they had no known enemies. They were, you know, really a very typical suburban family and seemed wholesome. Mm-hmm. So, um, that summer, they were heading to the. Uh, cabins for their summer long vacation i guess they did this every year which sounds amazing to get away for the summer like what a dream that would be i think the longest vacation i've ever taken is maybe two weeks from work so yeah. that's an awesome opportunity well so, back in those
1: I, th- I think people used to regularly vacation in the summertime and you know, get away for oh, a week or a an oh, oh, half or two I would love it yeah again that's not the american way so
0: no we just work 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 yeah
1: especially end of quarters they're like hey you can't take time off it's the end of the quarter you're a salesperson you got to sell
0: Boo. Well, you hiss.
1: know, you know, the way to take care of that is selling before the end of the quarter.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. So right around this time, Dick was hinting about a big deal that he was potentially going to make. My kind of guy. That was going to make him a tycoon.
1: Oh shit. Yeah, big
0: deal. Wow. So it supposedly involved a mysterious Mr. Roberts. Like some of the stories were sketchy about this, some some had it, some didn't. But regardless, this person was supposedly going to fly to Pelston on his personal Learjet wows. Wow. Um, to spend time at the family's cottage and then take them on a trip heading south on June 26. And the Robison family definitely talked about taking this trip. They said they were going to be gone for about three weeks. And Dick was planning on stopping on his way to Kentucky to potentially buy a horse farm and then head to Florida where he was planning on buying a beachfront condo.
1: Get a pony for little Susan. So, yeah. Seemed like a nice guy. Like, really wanted the best and Well,
0: stuff. and, you know, definitely seemed to be doing well financially because if you're already having... you have a vacation, vacation cottage cabin
1: i was gonna bring that up not necessarily this is like a standard thing for kid people in this time yeah i mean you definitely they're not poor you know but
0: oh um, yeah definitely not poor but the fact that you could potentially buy a horse farm and then a beachfront condo oh yeah
1: yeah that's true that's you good know point.
0: so that's that's a lot of properties for one person But I'm,
1: for like one cottage that's not that big of a deal whereas now these days it's like if you have a cottage a vacation home somewhere you're doing really, really you're well.
0: really well off yeah So, on Tuesday, June 25th, 1968, Dick had called his bank to check to see if a $20,000, or I'm sorry, $20,000, $200,000 deposit, yes, big money, had been made in the agency's account.
1: Can you do that conversion? Did you do it? Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week
0: um no i actually didn't do that conversion so this is 1968 oh while you look that up i'll continue to talk yeah um so a bank official said that not only had that money not been deposited but the account was surprisingly low in balance from what would be expected Uh,
1: i got it 1.6 million
0: so a lot of money so he's waiting on this deposit that doesn't happen And additionally, his account is surprisingly low. What the hell is going on? So um, the only other person that had access to this account was 30-year-old Joe Scalero, Dick's employee, who was basically manning the place while Dick was away. Um, So several phone calls had been made between the cottage and the office the receptionist would later testify that dick sounded very angry during these calls
1: well yeah all his money's gone he's trying to figure out who the hell took oh
0: it. you're in a major stress point when this money is not there
1: he's like la 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 let me check and see if I got i'm my going money to points. get
0: my horse farm yeah, i'm gonna
1: get my million bucks
0: do, do, in do, here do, do, do. yeah and then boom. And he's like son of a bitch mm, joe nope.
1: scalera where the hell is he
0: yeah so exchanging tons of phone calls not happy uh So uh, the Robinson family was last seen alive between 430 and 5 p.m. on June 25th by Russell Figg, who was doing yard work on their property. Dick paid Russell $170 by check and told him he wouldn't be there the next day as he was going on this planned trip. So Russell said he saw Dick and his older two sons that day, but hadn't seen Shirley or the two younger kids. Um, The next day, Russell and his assistant returned to the cabin to finish their work both of the Robinson cars were in the driveway, though no, no suspicion arose. I guess he was Dick was saying he was going to take a private jet down to wherever he was going. I'm not sure how he would have gotten to the airport, but regardless, it did not stand out that their two cars were still sitting there. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Russell's working on the property that day. He did notice what looked like bullet holes in one of the windows, and over the holes was a piece of cardboard that read "Be Back 7:10 Robinson." So it was like signed by a dick over these bullet holes. They did look in the... Um, they moved the note aside and peered through the window, but they weren't able to make out anything inside. Mm-hmm. And they just carried on with their work and left.
1: Wow. that's So they saw bullet holes. That's a big deal.
0: Yeah, they did. But you know how you're you don't want to be nosy you're like oh, okay i'm just doing my gardening work and i don't wanna, know
1: and you want to think the best it's like maybe it's not bullet holes yeah maybe took a rock somewhere
0: exactly it's just probably not on your radar that this is actually bullet holes but now that
1: he's being interviewed he's like yeah they're probably mm-hmm. bullet holes okay.
0: yep and they proved to be so oh, so there was also a light on that was later found off sometime in july so the question was did the light burn out did somebody return back to the scene and turn it off we don't know but the family had laid dead in their cabin for 27 days before being discovered he had to
1: figure it was a long time because the, the decomposition yeah. yes
0: so they basically reconstructed what could have happened this day, and forensic experts believe that a killer came out of the woods at twilight, approaching the window by the front door. They fired multiple shots from a 22 caliber rifle into the living room, striking Dick Robinson in the chest as he sat in his easy chair. So completely caught off guard, relaxing in your cabin, and boom, shots fired. Your hits. Yeah. So of course, you know the family would have been completely taken uh, aback and they were probably not even likely able to process what was happening before the killer burst through the front door shooting Shirley in the head followed by the younger kids, Randy and Susie. Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely horrific. And then the two oldest boys, Richie and Gary, they look to be playing cards at the table right there. And it, what appeared to be that they were running towards the back bedroom where they were found dead mm-hmm. to get their father's rifle. That was in the closets ah, and the one son was actually found laying just, you feet know, away. feet away from the closets. Mm. Didn't make it. Okay. Yeah. Very sad. Um, so they're all just shot multiple times, often in the head. Each of them was shot in the head. Gary was found like Cold I said
1: what man shoot somebody in the head a whole family you got to be pretty fucked to be able to do that
0: wipe out an entire family I mean
1: unless you're in like danger or something but it's just like coming at and just uh, completely ruining these mm-hmm. like the, taking these people's lives. Yep, gone Insane.
0: like I said Gary was found only inches from the closet with the rifle and then the killer in this part is just really gets me came back to Susie the seven-year-old and and struck her in the head with the hammer.
1: You know, when you first said that, like, that's the thing. I see, you know, maybe there's something with the, a struggle with the father, but you need to hit. I mean, you don't need to do any of these. None things, of this but the, should have happened. Obviously, a seven year old girl, you don't need to hit her in the head. I don't know. Like what
0: possessed them to go back to the seven year old that he had already gone down, hit her in the head with the claw hammer and then hit Dick in the head with the claw hammer.
1: Some hatred, some vile hatred.
0: A lot of hatred the killer also pulled down Shirley or pulled up Shirley's dress pulled her underwear down and cut part of it so that it was basically only hanging from one leg later it showed that she had not been sexually, sexually. assaulted she was just posed to look that way. I don't know if it was to like just derail the case a little bit. I'm not sure. Maybe
1: he diddled her a little bit. I I don't know. They still know that. I don't know.
0: So before leaving, the killer threw a plaid blanket over Shirley and dragged Dick, Susie and Randy into the hallway, drew the curtains, turned up the heat and locked the cabin door as they left. So
1: knowing he knowingly wanted to do this, wanted to make them like bake and, you know,
0: and decompose. And why? Yeah. Why turn up the heat? I don't understand. To
1: Make it smell really bad. Like yeah. just to make it horrible. But
0: then they're going to be found. Why would they want them to be found sooner? I don't know. I don't know. So, of course, this starts the investigation. Um, the investigators assigned to the case worked for the Michigan State Police, though ultimately detectives Lloyd Stearns and John Phils would have to answer to Emmett County Prosecutor Donald G. Noggle. Emmet County, uh, Michigan, was not used to murder. This was the largest mass murder, actually, in Michigan's history to date. I figured, I mean, yeah,
1: probably usually just peacefulness going on mm-hmm. up there.
0: But this is in Michigan to date. Yeah, you know, the oh, whole to state. Date. Yeah, to date in 1968, this was the largest uh, mass murder. Not just the county. You no. said Emmett County. Emmett County was not at all equipped oh, for got this. It. But okay. I'm saying that's how wow. big it was. Okay. Emmet County itself hadn't seen a murder in over a decade so you know they're not used to dealing with stuff like this right and um you know the the last case that did happen over a decade before i guess it was very quick the investigation was basically open and shut Mm -hmm. so now they're dealing with a murder of a family of six and needing to get to the bottom of who the hell would do such a thing well
1: you know on twitter the other day somebody mentioned how you know cops ruin these situations a lot um which is you know not whether it's true or false whatever it is but it's like how can you be really good at something like this when you never get the opportunity to mm-hmm. try it you know like these cops have never gone through a mass murder and how to you know they, they've they been trained on things obviously but, but like, to
0: actually do it yeah
1: it's like in, in in your job if you're trained on something it's like in one you're out the other until you actually have to do it and then you're like oh now i understand like you know it it's similar to that i would imagine so Especially a small town like this, like something's going to be screwed up somewhere.
0: Right. Yeah. And it kind of started out on the on the wrong foot. The hammer that was used to bludgeon and Dick and Susie, it was found discarded on the scene, but no fingerprints could be lifted. And this is because the police officer held it for a photo uh, with a handkerchief. Yeah. And you could actually see this photo. And he
1: like wiped it. Completely. Plain. Yes. Gosh.
0: So... You know, again, the sheriff was out on vacation at Yellowstone, which I guess they did find him and he immediately came back. Yeah. But in the meantime, this is a crime scene that's being investigated and people that don't know what they're doing are handling it. I'm not trying to knock them. They, you know, they're not equipped for this. But so like one of the main thing, actually, the only weapon they had on their person was you know the evidence was destroyed
1: and so you know you think like calling somebody from a bigger city like detroit or something but they're also dealing with their own shit every single day right so it's like it's not like they have open resources like yeah sure i'll send a, the, our best detective up there yeah no problem
0: and they were about four and a half hours from detroit just, I'm just, just to give you a yeah an using idea. that as an example yeah i know so a single bloody footprint was found, and this led investigators to believe that the murders were committed by a single killer. It was likely that the first shots through the window were fired from a twenty two Armalite AR-7 survival rifle.
1: AR-7. Hmm.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I was going to uh, say, it's a big guy.
1: Rifles are, are you know, you have to be an exact shot. So even if you're standing in front of somebody like a few feet away, I mean, this person's probably skilled with guns, it's, you, mm-hmm. know, you would think. So what is was an AR what?
0: ar7 survival rifle
1: seven rifle and i'm then, not even a gun guy i'm just curious yeah, to see what i it like
0: i here. know absolutely nothing yeah looks like a rifle yeah so <laughs> so then the um killer then switched to the 25 beretta jet fire semi-automatic pistol as he entered the cabin the brand of ammo that was used was a rare finished type uh with the name seiko that had only been sold during a two-week period in late January slash early February of that year, 1968. Some finger and palm prints were found that did not match the families. However, the cabin was flooded with investigators, police, you no, know. What was the,
1: the SAKO? It SACO? was the ammo that was used. Ammo, okay. It
0: was extremely rare. It was a finished type, and it had only been sold for two weeks. I wonder if
1: it's the same as the watch company here or whatever. Um, is, is it S E I No,
0: it's S-A-K-O.
1: S-A-K-O, okay, different.
0: So no matches of these palm and fingerprints were ever, you know, identified, the killer could be one of three possibilities at this point: a Blisswood resident, a random person, or someone from the Detroit area. The first two were very unlikely because of the ammo. Yeah, I guess so. Or because of why? Or w- all the different things. Really? Together. Why? Right. Um. But they basically quickly identified a prime suspect. Can do you have any guesses who that might be?
1: Um. Yeah. What name. was going
0: on the day they were last seen alive? Joe Scalero. Yes. So Joe Scalero becomes their number one suspect.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, Dick went to his bank account expecting a million. He's got, like, almost nothing. Now he's like, how the hell am I going to pay for all this stuff? And who the hell is stealing my money? Mm-hmm. And he's pissed off. And, yeah, you mentioned Joe Scalero. I'm like, this guy's definitely got something to do with it here. And obviously, yeah, you know, the business associate, that was something else. But, yeah, I'm curious to hear what goes on here.
0: So Joe had spent about three years in the Army and, and a year at Harvard before joining Dick's firm in 1965.
1: See, three years in the Army. You got to be a good shot to hit somebody.
0: Well, that, and I'll tell you more about him, too. He had a stocky build, stood about six feet tall, was smart with a high IQ, and was interested in guns. Hmm. He was a competitive trap shooter and used to hitting fast-moving targets. Wow. Like you were saying, you got to have a good eye and a good shot. Yeah. So. It's like you,
1: you see the movies. It seems really easy, and I've mentioned this before, but it's just, I've not that I've ever, I mean, I've shot some guns, but everything I read about like you, you think of this tiny little dot that needs to hit your exact target and you look at somebody, the further away they are like 12 feet away, we're only eight feet away right now. And I would have to, you know, kind of, I've only got this much. Oh, I
0: could shoot you right in the chest. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, but you've only got this much, you know, room.
0: Yeah, it's not a lot of surface area. Yeah,
1: and I'm I'm waving my finger. I mean, maybe three degrees of, you know, exactness.
0: And they were guessing that the person who did shoot through the window at Dick was maybe in the trees. So Mm. it's not like he was right there. Wow, really? You know, I don't know if the rifle had like one of those, um, what do they call them? The scopes. The scopes. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, he probably
1: did it for like sport.
0: Right, so, um, he had four guns registered to his name, two 22 AR seven rifles and two Beretta 25 jet fires. Yeah, hmm. that's it. Wow. I, you got your guy. He said he gave one Beretta to Dick and kept one from for himself. And then in terms of the rifles, he said he gave one AR seven to his brother-in-law who was also a part-time gun dealer and the other to a friend. So when Joe's brother-in-law was questioned, he indicated that none of his records indicated that the gun had been returned to him. He did say that he could take the authorities to a family shooting range where he and his father-in-law had witnessed the gun being fired by Joe. You know, it's like right there. It's like, wow, you just kind of got thrown under the bus by your brother-in-law. This was his wife's brother. Hey,
1: man, if somebody the same thing happened, I'd have to do the same.
0: Yeah, you have to. I mean, how do you sleep at night knowing, you know, you could help solve a murder case? Right. So, um, using a metal detector, Michigan State Police recovered several several spent twenty-two caliber shells, and ballistic testing results indicated um, that five... So, what the report actually read, it said, in my opinion, at least five of the above listed shells were fired from the same weapon as four of the twenty-two caliber shells from the crime scene. Mm. So, they matched. Mm-hmm. And then the second AR-7 uh that he had said he gave to his friend was not a match so hmm. and then joe's beretta came back as a negative match to the crime scene weapon but it was oh, no. loaded with the same rare seiko ammo what the hell that was only sold for two, two weeks, weeks that year right so the fact that he had that ammo but you it know, didn't match it, it somehow did, that did not match like, However, get another expert the other beretta was never found and many suspected that this one was the murder weapon.
1: Oh, okay. So there's got to be a unique signature for a gunfire. And so, yeah, he used the other one that yes. you can't find and threw away in it away. Who
0: knows something. where it was? Yeah. Um, probably
1: f- in the lake right behind the house.
0: Yeah, possibly. That's a good place to dump it. Or lake actually, Michigan.
1: I'd probably drive a little bit and then toss it yeah, in the lake. Yeah, you would think. Yeah.
0: A forensic accountant poured through the Robison's business records after the murders and And they found some glaring discrepancies between January of 1966 and July of 1968, with the issues only getting worse as the months and years went by. Um, So no issues. They they didn't identify any financial issues between 1960 and 1966. And of course, Dick hired on Joe at around 1965. So it directly correlated with the time frame that Joe was in the business. Well, he's not going
1: to start the first day and start embezzling. No. He's going to get Learn. to know things a little bit and mm-hmm. get access and they're like, okay, when does he not look at things and how can I get to get this out?
0: Yep. Okay. So, Detective Stearns and Phils found that Joe had swindled client Delta Fawcett out of about $60,000 and this was like their largest clients. That's in Michigan. So, what this is equivalent to is about $400,000. So, Louise. that is a lot of money. Man,
1: so Joe was doing well for himself stealing yeah. all this money
0: and this was an ad money from the previous year and then um it you know really what they what they couldn't find though is how much of this did dick know right they don't know what his involvement was well you gotta
1: read see if they're embezzling things together mm-hmm. in, in on it together
0: it was definitely suspicious that it could have been and then certain clients were overcharged by multiple thousands of dollars you know just money from this pot that pot the other pot
1: there's creative accounting that you can do in every business. And every businessman, you know, knows that you can do taxing certain ways and, and show a certain amount of money lost and then you know gain that money in the back end. So yeah, there's there's lots of different ways to do this stuff, and that's definitely something you gotta look into, the embezzlement.
0: Exactly. And then of course Joe appeared to have a role in the missing two hundred thousand dollars.
1: Oh, big surprise. Yeah,
0: exactly. That Dick was waiting to see it was gonna be deposited. So on the day that Dick anticipated the deposit, it was found that he and Joe had called each other 17 times Whoa. Yeah, likely to discuss the missing funds after a conversation between dick and joe that morning at approximately 10 33 a.m joe Scalero left the office and <laughs> did not return home that night until after ele- the 11 p.m news he's in
1: the office he's like hey
0: um you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna go get, i got a
1: headache i gotta go home
0: i gotta take a little ride yeah I'm,
1: i feel like i gotta go north
0: ttyl <laughs> bye-bye T T
1: F N. talk to you <laughs> fucking later
0: <laughs> okay Ta-ta for now Ta-ta for now yeah. Mike Um. so his <laughs> his wife had said no he did not return home until after the 11 p.m. news um, and she had said that in their six years of marriage it was the first time he did not come home or at least call to say that he wouldn't be home
1: so Joe has no alibi here
0: very very suspicious but you'll see more about that Ooh. so Joe's brother-in-law of like I had referred to the gut partial or gun Owner, the guy dealer. that sold him yeah. out yeah he had told investigators that joe was a pathological liar and that the family was wondering where this excess money was coming from that he had been getting before the robinson murder sounds
1: like he's not a huge fan of joe
0: no i don't think they were very close right. i don't think he really respected joe very much yeah and since um joe or joe and his wife had gotten divorced Uh-oh. so they, since- they didn't
1: Oh, they
0: were husband and wife at the time. Okay. They got a divorce after that. Yeah. So then another article that I had read indicated that Joe had convinced Dick to take out a 200,000 insurance policy prior to his death. It's a policy known as the key man business policy that would pay into the business the amount insured if anything happened to the key man, which is Mr. Robison. Um, what Joe didn't realize that Dick had failed to complete his scheduled um, medical exams in order to have this come into effect. So the policy never went through.
1: Well, Joe's probably like, did you get that done? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, I'll take care of it. But Joe. in the
1: back of his head it's like, "Nope, not yeah, done." yeah,
0: so it wasn't done. I
1: mean, it is that is a good idea for somebody that is like the most important part of the company, you know, that sure. has these relationships. It's good to have insurance on that person in case, you know, because all these people are counting on him. So. Of
0: course, but this is only further leading to you know, show the shine the light on Joe saying yeah, something. Absolutely, you know he had a lot of motive. Yeah. So Joe Scalera was a prime suspect from the beginning. Like I said, he was grilled by Stearns and Fills for months and acted cagey and evasive. Stern said of Joe, from the twelve interviews they held held with him, not once did we walk away thinking this guy is innocent. <laughs> right. You know, it's like all <laughs> signs point to go. Yeah. Um, His alibi was inconsistent. It seemed to often mislead detectives. He had said that he was at a plumbing convention that day.
1: Well, he's a smart guy, like you said. So he has to have some kind of story. Right. You know, and this plumbing convention sounds like it.
0: Mm -hmm. So this is what he's using. So he said he was there. Um, and, you know, of the people that were there that were questioned, pretty much no one remembers seeing him. One guy did say, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there with him. The weather was real nice and the sun was bright, which was the opposite of what was true. Oh. Yes. That day, it was horrifically rainy, gloomy, so much so that a lot of people left the convention early that day and the vendors packed up early. So they said the pa- the fact that he said he was there till five o'clock is Highly unlikely because everyone was dispersing well before that because Mm. of the weather. Interesting. The deal was, though, it was a three day convention. So when this man was saying, Oh, it was bright and sunny that day, he probably saw him there, but not that day. Ah, okay. Right. So he said he left the convention at 5 p.m. and stopped at the Robison house on his way home because it had been raining all day and he wanted to check on a leak that Dick had said they were having issues with in their home. Apparently, he found a leak. He tended to it and then basically finished up and headed home. So um,
1: why wouldn't the uh, maintenance guy do that instead of Joe?
0: This is at his own personal home in Lathrop. Got it. Yeah. In the Detroit area. Got it. So, Blisswood Cabin residents claim they heard gunshots at 9 p.m. the night of the murders. This is where... that's later than they thought. Yes. Well, this is where it derails the idea that Joe had anything to do with it. Mm. Because, like I mentioned, the Detroit area is about four and a half um, hours from where Dick and his family are vacationing. Right. So, basically, Joe would have to drive... The 275 miles at 138 miles per hour, the whole way back to Detroit, which. <laughs> Impossible. You know, in order to get home when his wife said he was. Yeah. Not possible. He doesn't
1: have a Lamborghini.
0: No. So the neighbor said she heard one shot and then about two or three seconds later, she heard four or five more in rapid succession and assumed it was related to target practice. She mentioned target practice on the beach. I guess people would shoot at seagulls. Hmm. So it wasn't like completely unheard of to hear gunshots, I guess, is what I gather. Well, you're
1: shooting into the lake. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then the neighbor's sister who lived just north of her said the same thing, but thought she heard eight shots. In order for Joe to have been home, like I said, he would have had to have left the cabins by 6.30 p.m. if he was driving at a normal speed. So that's where this 9 o'clock thing is... Inconsistent with what could have happened. Mm -hmm. However, another resident made a statement saying that at 6.30 p.m. on June 25th, he was changing storm windows on a cabin when he heard a lot of shooting to the north. He wasn't sure how far north, but the Robison cabin was about four miles north of where this witness was. That's
1: that's the time.
0: Yeah, that would be the time. Yeah. So over a year after the murders... You'd have
1: to think he missed maybe a couple times. So you'd have to... I would anticipate six seven eight shots something like that
0: yeah and also i mean i don't know if i don't
1: know what they found but
0: well they found the shell casings and that sort of thing but like the people who are testifying it's hard like did you sit in your cabin and go like oh one two three four you know well no you
1: you try to think back and you try to put your i was just doing that Mm because we hear gunshots back here because we live in podunk florida not podunk but it's no like,
0: we live in a nice uh town of, of florida yeah
1: but at the same time there's um some locals that have been here for, for interesting
0: years. people yeah
1: and they had they take their gunshot they're not supposed to but they do a little firing practice once in a while and i you know you put yourself in that situation you're like one two three like you feel like i feel like there was five or six yeah
0: i could see that because our dog is like deathly afraid of noises like that so she'll like just climb up my chest when it happens so that i'm very aware of the shots only because of our dog yeah um, but this kind, of, this next thing I'm going to tell you about is just more to kind of go to Joe's character so over a year um i was
1: curious to see what kind of guy he is
0: so after a year after the murders joe's next door neighbor came to authorities his name was carl obrick and he had said that in june of 1968 which of course was that month that the robisons were killed Mm -hmm. um joe had offered to pay him ten dollars it's like i don't know if ten dollars was worth more back then but if somebody gave me ten bucks i'd be like keep your money please
1: depends what it is
0: um so he wanted him to make a call pretending to be someone else Joe wrote down what he wanted Carl to say, but I guess Carl had a re- pretty strong German accent. So he's like, nah, I'm not going to use you. Like, why'd Stupid. you get him in the first place? Right. Uh, whatever. That's neither here nor there. So then he got a- another man named Timothy Duff to make the phone call. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm Joe. <laughs> hello.
0: Hello. This <laughs> hello. is Joe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the person they called was Dick. And they recalled saying, I'm calling in regards to the deal we have been working on with Mr. Scalero, and my client has informed me that he will go on as much as five, but no more. They remember remembering that Dick was excited by this news. He doesn't know any more than that. But, you know, obviously, Joe is involving in some shady dealings, paying his neighbors to make a fake phone call to, to Dick. Yeah. Um, but uh, this piece of information still wasn't enough to make any kind of arrests. It was just adding to the pot of Joe being kind of a piece of crap.
1: Okay. He clearly offered this guy money to make a fake call. Yes, exactly.
0: And then on December 17th, 1969, a year and a half after the murders, detective fills and Stearns delivered a whole case evidence book of the things that they had collected through this whole time, uh, to the Emmett County prosecutor, Donald Noggle that i'd mentioned on january 14th 1970 Noggle issued his decision without the two missing firearm weapons and without fingerprints of the suspect being found at the crime scene he would not issue a warrant for joe's arrest yeah and the emmet county sheriff's department and the michigan state police were absolutely shocked by his denial so on may of 1970 they tried again and they were again denied Hmm. so um one of the detectives that you know presented this case file he said you know he's looking for evidence that you're never going to always have perfectly but yeah
1: that's the hard part that's just you you have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person did it like just because they have the same kind of weapon doesn't necessarily there's a big that they motive did. though. There is there yeah. is a big motive, and I don't know if that is factored into it at all. I think just the facts are you know like I, maybe I don't know people I'm,
0: have been arrested for less. I know that just right. listening to podcasts, but they think it was a financial thing.
1: Yeah, for that, sure. You
0: know, you're taking this to trial. It's going to cost a lot of money. Oh, so they think that it was denied more because they didn't want to pay for the trial. Really? I read that. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's the truth.
1: Well, anybody could. Yeah, there's a lot of you know. These social justice warriors or whatever that are like, no, they didn't, they should have done this better, which obviously they should have, but you also have to think of the flip point. Regular citizens that might happen to have a jet fire or something like that, and then all of a sudden, you know, well, I need a warrant for this person to search their house to see if they happen. It's like, no, they have nothing to do with it. They're protecting the people. Yeah,
0: why would they? Yeah,
1: they're protecting people like that who clearly have nothing to do with it because if you open up one side, you open up both sides. That's the problem. And this judge, for whatever reason, maybe I'm not... Protecting them, but I'm saying hopefully that was their reasoning and not some other bullshit. It, you know, like like cost.
0: Yeah, S- a lot stupid. of people felt that it was cost related. Yeah,
1: that's um, unfortunate. So
0: then, four years after Donald Noggle denied Joe's arrest, a new prosecutor was elected, L. Brooks Patterson, and he gave permission to go after Joe Scalera. So by March of 1973, they were exceptionally close at issuing an arrest warrant.
1: 1973. Yes,
0: and this was obviously 1968. That so five years later. Mm-hmm. So they were about to issue and deliver an arrest warrant. Um, But big kicker in the case. Joe left Thursday, March 8th, 1973 at approximately 3 PM. Joe Scalera put a Beretta 25 caliber pistol into his mouth and pulled the trigger. Okay. Same gun that was involved in killing the Robison family. He knew
1: he was close to getting. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think he must've known. So their prime suspect is now dead by suicide. Like I said, same pistol that was used to kill the family. So Joe had pinned a note to his door warning his mother not to enter. The note read, mother, don't you come in. I will already be dead. Please have someone else come in and you call the police or whatever. I actually saw it in his own handwriting. Wow. And then he signed Joe. And then there was also a suicide note left on the desk where he shot himself.
1: I'm going to put that on the Instagram.
0: Uh, The note. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Um, so with this note, it said it was basically including all the people that he had screwed over and their names. It, it was partially typed, partially handwritten, written and it included. I am a liar, a cheat, a phony with this. Like I said, he listed the people he had stolen in his schemes. He had also wrote, written P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robison's. I am a liar, but not a murderer. I am sick and scared. God and everyone else. Please forgive me.
1: Yeah, bring God into it, asshole. Yeah, so... Oh, God, what a scumbag.
0: Yep, and then, Yeah, you
1: are a murderer, stupid. You fucking shot people, yeah, dumbass, and yep. kid children, like... Again, it's not right to kill anybody, but don't kill kids, man. I mean... uh.
0: Why involve the whole family? Like, we talked about that in other cases we have done. Um, You talked about that one family that was brought out to the California desert and killed because of potential business dealings. Yeah. Why would you involve the family? And why are you hitting them with claw hammers? I don't know. It's sick. Disgusting. Like, absolutely horrible, vile
1: vile person. He must have had some some issues and stuff, too. You, You have to. It's it's not a standard thing that like if you if you steal a bunch of money from somebody and you kill them you're going to be found out like just don't one don't steal money from people if you do just hand yourself in and you'll be out of jail in like five years because it's just money like money money M- money than-
0: is just such a dirty thing sometimes I mean it's amazing what people will do and sell their soul to the devil to get like I can't wrap my head around it oh
1: I totally could I'd kill you for it yeah
0: <laughs> the way that I feel about money is it it does it can help your life be easier in some ways. And I want to be comfortable, but why do people get so greedy to the extent that they're going to do such horrific things to get it?
1: Because it's like a game and he doesn't want to lose it either. That's So it was not losing it because he already had it. You know, he didn't have to kill this guy to get more money. He just had to kill him so he wouldn't get it taken away from right, him. Right. I guess so. Yeah, they say the power of losing something is like double the power of gaining something.
0: Go get it. Go have like work hard and be honest to get your money. Why do you have to do it like this? It's
1: harder that way. Yeah. It's a lot easier. No, life's do. not
0: easy, kid. You don't just get things <laughs> handed to you on a silver friggin' platter. Well,
1: that's why it's easy. You hear about the stories of people who run into stores and just taking things and leaving. It's just easier to take that. And, you know, in a society... We, we have certain rules that are just like, you, you won't walk into a store and just no, take things out. That's why we
0: have rules. Right.
1: And society starts to crumble once those rules are broken. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting.
0: There were a couple other like twists in the case or potential suspects that really weren't amounting to much. You know, I had mentioned that Mr. Roberts so yeah. a search of Dick's home found a bizarre letter titled superior table. And in this letter, it listed a chain of power. And- Wait,
1: Mr. Roberts was the guy that was going to buy or do this yes. big business deal. Yes. Yeah. And
0: it's not Roberts spelled like you would think it was. It was R O E B E R T S. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So this letter was listing a chain of power as decided by Mr. Roberts, the chairman and director of the superior table. Like, I don't know. So what they were thinking...
1: Name of his company, whatever.
0: They were thinking it could be listed to the Rousicrucian, which is a spiritual and cultural movement, a worldwide brotherhood claiming to possess wisdom handed down from ancient times. Ah, Yeah, I've never heard of this.
1: So it's kind of like Illuminati type stuff. Like, you know, you always hear these secret... like. Groups, societies like type societies. of deal yeah. people with a lot of money they think they're big shits and then they want to think that they rule the world and stuff and yeah
0: so they they investigated the names that were listed in this letter but they really led to nothing they heavily tried to investigate this mr um roberts but they know ne- he they never found this person I guess in another way, they found that Dick referred to him as my father and ended the letter by writing, I'm looking forward with great anticipation and love to the day we finally meet soon. And I hope always your son, Richard.
1: Whoa. Very weird. That is weird.
0: Yeah. So that's why the uh, detectives initially said that the case just was getting layered on top of layered of weirdness.
1: It was like Occam's razor was what was presented to them, which Occam's razor, it's the easiest solution mm-hmm. basically that's that's well. The joe
0: word. is the easiest solution yes, correct
1: so it's the easiest solution but then you find these other things that dick just happened to be fucking weird with mm-hmm. these other you know dealings that he was dealing with and sorry to dick's family but yeah this sounds course. weird so um we're just looking at the facts here and he, he was dealing with this other thing so it's like wait now this could be happy you know it takes you into these different worlds well
0: you have to if you're a good investigator you you can't just have your you know your focus on one thing you have to consider that it could be other things for sure because until you get that conclusion and the arrest, you got to look at other avenues. Yeah. So there was just other weirdness in the letter. Dick referred to Steamboat Joe, who had given him a message which he had put where we decided. Dick indicated that he ins- instructed Joe not to allow me to drop my wallet.
1: Is Steamboat Joe Joe Scalero? They're
0: thinking it must be. Okay. And then this whole, like, don't let him drop his wallet. If anything should happen to him to take my entire wallet and pass it up to where motor people would know what to do with it.
1: So you've got to think that Joe knows about the society, too, right? Yeah. Because they're business associates and he has access to the bank account. The wallet is probably the bank account.
0: And there were just weird things in the letter, and you saw this letter, too. It Not the full letter of the thing, but you list, saw the listed of names and the superior table and whatever. And in Mr. Robert's name, you could see they put stars under the O.E. Hmm. I think it was something like that. And in multiple areas, they have these stars like under certain letters of his name. Hmm. So it was just a very bizarre letter that they couldn't really figure out what it was. But then there was also twists in the case. And, you know, I don't want to talk badly of Dick who was shot dead and his family was killed. But they did say that he Dick had been treated at Oakwood Hospital in Dearborn and was found to be mentally ill when records were assessed, it was concluded that Dick was found to be mentally disturbed and others called him a schizophrenic. This made detectives think about the letters that mis- about Mr. Roberts. Like, does this person even exist? Or is he writing about somebody that's not even there? Like a fantasy.
1: Yeah. Or not even a fantasy. He probably believes he's really real, but n- not in real life. Yeah. Wow.
0: And, I- you know, nobody else had apparently met this person. So
1: did they find this two hundred grand that came? I
0: like- never heard that they found this money.
1: Okay so because i was wondering i know joe stole money from the delta account and everything but mm -hmm. um and then you know you did mention how they were both watching the account for this 200 grand
0: well dick was for sure i what joe knew of this i don't know dick's calling and the money's not there
1: i wonder what set joe off to kill him this day because originally i was thinking okay yeah the 200 came in and joe took it and he's like well dick can't tell people that i took it here so i'm gonna go kill him
0: yeah and there's there's more to the story i'll get into but um and i i'll try to make it quick but so just real quick mr roberts apparently offered to build an extension business and cultural complex around the new Hudson regional airport in Oakland County outside of Detroit on June 6th, you know three weeks before the murders dick had pitched his idea to managers of the airport telling him that he and a wealthy and financer named mr roberts was behind the deal and would be contacting them the airport managers received a call from mr roberts he seemed to be elderly had a monotone voice and spoke in a halting manner one of the managers got the impression that they were talking to a robot oh. very weird Immediately after the call, Dick called to see how the talk had gone. He told managers that he was excited and heading up to his cabin in Goodhart, and if they needed anything, they should contact Joseph Sclera.
1: It could be like a voice changer.
0: Potentially, yes. When airport managers spoke to Joe about Mr. Roberts, Joe said, beats the hell out of me, like he didn't know this person, according uh, to Joe. Was he lying? Who knows? Pat loves the lying Joe. It, it, would you put it past him? No. Old steamboat Joe? Nope. And on the night of the murder, Shirley had told her best friend that a man would be coming to stay with them in Goodhart for a few days. And then the plan was for the family to travel south, like I said, to look for the at the property in Kentucky and Florida. Um, And the investigators did find that note on the door that said, be back. And I guess the handwriting analysis showed that Dick actually did write be back 710 Robinson. Hmm. But he may have written that before. Who knows?
1: And then how the bullet holes get in the car
0: bullet holes in the car no it was on the cabin window oh cabin window yeah and the the piece of cardboard was taped over the bullet holes that said be back 710 rob oh he
1: probably wrote it inside later yeah Yeah, maybe he
0: wrote it before because like i said there was a suitcase on the bed that was open they were getting prepared to take this trip yeah So then another person they suspected was potentially that Chauncey slash Monty who actually found the bodies. That was just quickly dispelled. Um, I guess his son had died recently in a motorcycle accident and there was some friction there between he and Dick. I don't know, but it fell to nothing. Yeah. Another suspect was Martin Fulton, which was Shirley's brother. Uh, apparently, a red VW car at the scene of the Robinsons' cabin was seen on July 4th, nine days after the murders. Marvin drove a red Opal sports car, which I guess strongly resembled a red VW bug. Um, so then later on, they saw this car at the property after the murders. They sat, they looked into it, and Marvin had been given permission to go to the cottage or cabin after the deaths to retrieve his um, canoe. Mm-hmm. So they're like, that's the car. That's the car we saw before they were found. Mm-hmm. I don't think that did, that didn't lead to anywhere. Um, and then, you know, Dick wasn't exactly from what I read crystal clean either. And I know I've kind of hinted to this as mental illness, potentially his secretaries were uh, questioned. And I guess 22 year old Glenda had said that when she worked with Dick, he would call her into his office, lock the door and ask her to hike up her dress so that he could look at her legs. He would just uh-huh. stare at her legs, run his hands over them, and it never went further than that, but this went on for uh, months. Then another secretary... So sure you just let him,
1: huh? Nowadays, people would be like, fuck this, well, I'm going to HR. Yeah, exactly, Which thank goodness. But you know, you look at the Mad Men days, you know, that, that TV show Mad Men, um, the 1950s or whatever, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of sexual stuff like that, and it's disgusting.
0: I guess another secretary had said she was also harassed, um, and then another twist came in the case six years after the murders in 1974, an abandoned car was found on the side of the road in Southern Michigan. When searched a luggage tag with Shirley Robinson's name on it was found. Mm. So it's like, what the hell is this? So the car was traced to Toledo where it was sold in 1966 This brought up a previously dead-end theory back to life from 1970, where at the time, a convict from Leavenworth Prison named Alexander Bloxham wrote a letter to the Michigan State Police claiming to know who killed the Robinson family. He said he met a fellow ex-con named Mark Warren Brock at a halfway house in 1968. Brock had been hired to do a job that would pay him well, and was offered Bloxham to be his accomplice. But I guess when all was said and done, he had said that, he couldn't go and do the murders because he was black and no black people were in Goodhart, Michigan.
1: And that he
0: would be found. I could
1: totally believe that. He would stick out like a sore thumb. A lot of white people in Michigan.
0: But they said...
1: in uh, in northern Michigan.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever visited that area. But they said they were hired by a white man about six feet tall, which was Joe's height. However, they said he was about 51 years old. We know Joe was about 30. But everyone's perception of age can be very different. Yeah, Who you knows? go in the army
1: and you, know, you go through hell.
0: Yeah, they said he weighed about 200 pounds. So, Sounds like Joe. When Brock came back from this job, he had a briefcase with gold initials in the upper right-hand corner. The briefcase contained an investment bonds, canceled checks, audio tapes, and photos of a man and a woman with four children standing on a boat. Hmm. The ex-cons cut the briefcase into pieces and burned the leather in an alley behind the halfway house. According to Bloxham, Brock said that he and accomplished Robert Matthews knocked on the door of the Robinson cabin, Brock faked a heart attack and Mrs. Robison let them in while Brock laid on the floor Shirley Robison assisting Matthews started shooting killing Shirley first the difference here is that the killer had shot from outside hence the bullet holes in the window yeah. so that part of it doesn't line up when Stearns and Phils showed fi- uh, fu- Un-
1: unless they're shooting from the inside and it went out
0: perhaps yeah. possibly
1: I mean you'd, you'd have ballistics experts that can say which way the bullet was going right
0: So when Stearns and Phils showed Block some photos of who hired them, he indicated a photo of Joe Scalero um, was the person, but then quickly changed his mind, saying that he couldn't be sure. When Brock was questioned, he wasn't cooperative. um, And Robert Matthews denied having anything to do with the murders. So it was kind of going nowhere. Uh, but the Dick Robinson did own a briefcase, just as Bloxham described. I'm sure every businessman at the time probably did, too. Yeah. Um. By the time the car was found, Joe was dead. And Brock and Bloxham were already back in prison after robbing a bank. So that kind of went nowhere, too. They also thought maybe it was a serial killer from Eastern Michigan University. That's where Richie Robinson, the son, attended. Yep. Mac. Um, Mac action. Yeah. So he briefly shared a room with John Norman Collins, the prime suspect in the Michigan co ed murders, which I brought up in another. Um one of my stories. Yeah, interesting. Kind of weird how it came back to this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that one also kind of went nowhere too.
1: Okay. So a lot of different different areas. Yeah. That,
0: that, and then even Ted Kaczynski was brought up in one of the things. They always
1: are. These <laughs> the famous ones are always like, I mean, you gotta think about stuff just in case. Yeah. yeah. And that's how probably the, the ones he actually was responsible for. I, I brought up Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, and you one did of, in one
0: of yours. Yeah. He's
1: like, no, I didn't do that one. I didn't I'm telling you, the only ones at Hond were these people. Stop asking me questions.
0: So basically everything went nowhere. Where um, in March of 1969, the Robinson cami- cabin ended up being torn down. I guess the extent of the decomposition was just so bad that not only did they have to demolish the cabin, but they had to remove an inch of topsoil because oh, wow. of, it, it permeated that far, Jeez. even into the earth. Um and then the case evidence file sits on the shelves of the Michigan State Police inactive section. Um since nineteen seventy three. No additions have been made to the file. No. So Joe, it's done.
1: Yeah, that's open and shut.
0: Likely it was Joe. There's
1: some details, I'm sure, that some other people are probably should be charged with something, but Joe definitely
0: had did something to do with it. Whether it was him or he got somebody else involved. Who knows?
1: And he's dead, so...
0: Yeah, we'll never know. Yeah. But um, it's just very sad, and I'm sorry for the Robison family. For and, sure. Yeah.
1: As always. It's tough. So Especially that's, those kids, man. Yeah, that exactly. That's well, my story. Great Great job uh, telling the story and bringing a lot of details to it. And you didn't even have to uh, stop and pee during this. Uh, I, aren't
0: you impressed? Yeah,
1: yeah. And especially if we're going to be doing YouTube videos here in a little bit, uh, you can't be going pee during the middle all well, the time.
0: Well, I guess I'm going to have to dehydrate myself.
1: Yeah, you're. I don't know if our listeners know this, but you drink like ungodly amounts of water every single day. I'm
0: thirsty, Mike.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're thirsty. And you can't right.
0: stop me from drinking my water. I'm sorry.
1: I, that's the most annoying voice this ever. This is me
0: and I am not changing for you. <laughs>
1: I think I cut myself on a french fry box yesterday. I had a little bit of Reese's french fries.
0: Why were you gnawing on the french fry box?
1: Because, well, I was trying to get a french fry in my mouth and I missed and it was dark in my car and I like slit my lip with it so i injured myself eating french fries
0: oh boy it's a dangerous job those french fries yeah they're not yeah. going to eat themselves no
1: it's unfortunate all so. right
0: well we'll see you back here next week thank you for joining and listening in
1: yeah please give us a, a review on apple i podcasts or spotify we appreciate it and we love you and uh, have a great week everybody and uh, thanks for listening
0: Bye. bye